In two weeks, it will be the anniversary of my mother's death. On November 22, 1998, Carlson Carlson Brooks died from metastasized breast cancer. She was first diagnosed with cancer in 1992. She had a mastectomy, underwent chemotherapy, took tamoxifen for five years. But in the summer of 1997, her cancer returned. Over the next year, as mom received additional treatment, she fought valiantly. She also wanted to be miraculously healed so that her oncologist, Dr. Cohen, would come to believe in Jesus. On a visit to mom and dad in August 1998, I took mom to the mall to buy her a new pair of shoes because her feet were so bloated, her current shoes no longer fit. Then in October, I got a call from dad saying it was time to call the family together. And so my sister, brother, and I came to say goodbye. Once we all arrived, my mother rallied a bit because she loved having her family all around her. And we celebrated mom's 65th birthday together but the cancer continued to ravage her body. With my boss's blessing, I stayed and took care of mom while she was in hospice. I watched as her brain started to lose function when she began to talk like a child. I grieved when she no longer wanted to eat, and I heard her groan in pain, even though I was diligently giving her each dose of morphine as prescribed. As mother's body slowly lost its fight between life and death, I myself wrestled with the whole idea of pain and suffering and death. Why? Why? Why do we have to suffer? Why do some people die slow and painful deaths from diseases like cancer? I hated watching my mother suffer. Our scriptures today speak of suffering and death but they also give us insights to help us face suffering. Our first reading comes from the book of Job, named after a prosperous man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was so righteous that God pointed out there is none like him on the earth. As a result of Satan's rebellious challenge against God, the Lord allows the adversary to incite violence against Job. And as a result, his children are all killed, his wealth is stolen, and his body is covered with loathsome sores. In spite of all this, Job still refused to curse God and die, as his wife counseled him to do. But He is overwhelmed with grief over what has happened to him, and he even wishes he'd never been born. And he's confused as to why God is allowing all this suffering. Three of his friends came to comfort him, but they had bought into the simplistic belief that God blesses the righteous with good things and that any bad happenings are God's punishment for sin. 
convinced that God is punishing Job for his sin. They try to convince him to repent. But Job is sure he has done nothing wrong. He is convinced his suffering is unfair. And even though he believes it is God who is attacking him, still he appeals to God for help. Job pleads for God to serve as an arbitrator and judge in his case. Job asks God to serve as his witness in heaven, to testify in his defense. And he calls God to be his defense attorney. In our passage for today, Job appeals to God as his redeemer. The Hebrew word here is goel, meaning kinsman redeemer. This is a special role established in the Torah. The kinsman redeemer was a brother or other close male relative, and his role was to help an impoverished family member who had sold property to a foreigner or sold himself into slavery to settle debts. Redeemers were also responsible for avenging the blood of a family member who had been murdered and maintaining the family line when a relative died without a male heir. This is the role that Job is pleading with God to take on his behalf when he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes behold, and not another. Handel used this passage to describe God's triumph of salvation in the Messiah. Yet, Bible scholars agree that Job is not proclaiming his belief in a bodily resurrection. Rather, he's making a statement of faith about the character of God. Job's disease had progressed to the point that he was approaching death, and his skin was literally being destroyed. And so, in his proclamation, he was expressing his faith that before he died, God would come to serve as his redeemer in his case, before those who accused him of wrongdoing. Job was expressing confidence that God would come to vindicate while he was still alive. It is possible that Job was also expressing a belief that he would enjoy an ongoing relationship in God's presence after death, but not necessarily in bodily form. And while he may not have been aware of it, Job may have been speaking prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ, who centuries later did come as our Redeemer. But in the face of suffering and death, Job still believed that God was just. He still trusted in the Lord. He is a model to us of one who kept his faith in God, even while living in excruciating physical, emotional and spiritual pain. Our psalm for today provides a similar lesson. It was written by David, and it too is a call for justice. He is calling for justice in the face of being violently attacked by enemies. And so he begins, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from my lips free of deceit. 
from your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the, lot, the right. Then David goes on to proclaim his innocence, and he expresses confidence that God will answer him. He calls on God, who he knows to be a God of love, saying, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And he ends with this statement of faith. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Like Job, in the face of suffering, David still believed that God was just. He still trusted in the Lord. He is a model of someone who continues to believe in God's justice and love even in the face of adversity. While our gospel lesson does not directly address suffering, it does teach us about resurrection and eternal life. Here we find Jewish religious leaders looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. They were hoping to catch him in something, saying something heretical, so they could arrest Jesus and have him executed. One Jewish faction, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, sent a delegation to ask Jesus a theological question. They used a scenario based on the Torah to try to trick him. In Deuteronomy 25.5, it says that if a man dies without leaving a male heir, the deceased man's brother is to serve as a go-well, right? a kinsman redeemer. He is to marry the widow so that she has the opportunity to become pregnant with a son in the name of her late husband. This ensured that the deceased man's family line continued on, and it served to keep the decedent's property in the extended family. And given that it was a patriarchal society and there was no social security system, this was also a way of providing for the widow. With this com commandment in mind, the delegation of Sadducees posed to Jesus a ridiculous scenario. It posited that a woman married seven times and still died childless. The question then was, in the resurrection, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus' response begins by clarifying his questioner's understanding of resurrection life. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In other words, just as angels are immortal, so will faithful followers of God be immortal. There will be no need to have children, because resurrected people never die. Furthermore, there will not be any need to form families, because God will be their father, and they will belong to his family. 
They are children of the resurrection. Then Jesus uses the written Torah, the one portion of scripture that the Sadducees respect, to refute their assumption that there is no resurrection from the dead. He refers to the passage in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses sees the burning bush. When the Lord first speaks to Moses, he introduces himself saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus points out that the Lord was speaking about a current relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the patriarchs had been dead and ceased to exist, then the Lord would have used a past tense verb. I was the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But the Lord was using present tense, signifying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still living. So, Jesus concludes, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. God's desire is that those who choose to live in a relationship of love and obedience to God will enjoy the benefits of eternal life in his presence. Our gospel lesson gives us tools to face suffering because it teaches us at least three things. First, there is a resurrection. There is life after death. Second, those who are faithful followers of God will become immortal. They will receive resurrection bodies that never die. Third, not only will they receive immortal bodies, they will be children of the resurrection and God will be their father. Remembering these things can keep our temporary earthly suffering in perspective. Finally, our epistle lesson teaches us both about suffering and resurrection. This time, the suffering addressed is religious persecution. The second letter to the Thessalonians was written to the church that Paul had planted in Thessalonica, the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was on the main road between the city of Rome and the eastern part of the empire. Paul and Silas first shared the good news of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica after being beaten, in, um, arrested, beaten, and imprisoned in Philippi where they had planted a church before. After being expelled from Philippi, they took the road south towards Athens and came to Thessalonica. There they discovered a synagogue. And for three Sabbath days, they attended services, explaining from the scriptures that Jesus was the expected Messiah. Some of the Jews, as well as quite a number of the devout Greeks, believed in Jesus and joined Paul and Silas. However, some of the Jewish religious leaders were jealous of the group gathering around Paul and they started a riot. As a result, the new believers in Jesus immediately sent Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica by night to the city of Berea. The persecution of the Christian community in Thessalonica continued, however. 
even the Greek believers in Jesus suffering from ongoing oppression from their Greek countrymen. And so, as a good bishop, Paul provided pastoral care, both by sending his assistant Timothy and by writing two letters. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, which is in our readings for today, we find the Apostle Paul comforting and equipping the church in Thessalonica in light of this ongoing persecution. Part of what Paul does to comfort them is to put their sufferings in the context of the larger plan of God. And in our portion for today, he makes the following two points. First, God chose the believers in Thessalonica to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Second, God called them through the gospel so that they may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at these two more closely. First, God chose them to be followers of Jesus. There was no application form, no job interview, no claim that he would get in touch if he were interested. God intentionally drew them to himself. He chose them to be safe. Those who fall for Satan's lies and refuse to love the truth are perishing and condemned. But by God's grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, those who embrace the truth are chosen by God and saved from eternal condemnation. They will enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. Second, God called them to be followers of Jesus through the gospel. It was through hearing and receiving the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection that they came to even know that God had chosen them. And the reason God called them was so that they may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns as a victorious king, all who are followers of Jesus will share in Jesus' glory. How amazing is that? I don't think I deserve to share in his glory. We who obey Jesus as Lord will share in his glory. What an expression of God's love. And as Paul explains these reasons for hope and encouragement during suffering, he wraps it all in God's love. Three times in our reading, Paul reminds them that God loves them. In chapter 2, verse 13, he refers to them as beloved of the Lord. In verse 16, Paul speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. And in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul speaks once again of the love of God, praying for them, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So in love, God chose them to be saved and God called them to share in Christ's glory. Therefore, Paul says, stand firm. In the face of suffering, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, he says. Do not hesitate. Do not relax and take it easy and while away your time until you die and go to heaven. 
Brace yourself. Be on guard. Stand firm. And hold on, Paul says. Hold on to the uh, traditions that you were taught by us. Do not consider adopting different teachings or philosophies. Rather, continually remind yourself of what you have been taught. Hold on to what is true. Hold on for dear life. And remember, Paul says, the Lord is faithful. And as part of his faithfulness, he will establish the believers in Jesus and guard them against the evil one. So what are the insights we've learned to help us when we face suffering? Our gospel lesson gives us hope because it assures us there is life after death for those who faithfully follow God. They become immortal and they belong to God's family and he is their father. Our epistle lesson gives us comfort in the face of suffering It reminds us that out of love, God chose us to be saved. He deliberately draws us into a relationship with him by the work of his Holy Spirit. He enabled us to believe in the truth of the gospel. And out of love, God called us to him. He enables us to hear the good news so that we may share in Christ's glory. Our lessons from Job and the Psalms give us examples of what it looks like to stand firm. Both Job and David held on to what they knew to be true about God and enabled them to remain faithful to God. A week before my mother died, she called us all to her bedside. We assumed she was saying goodbye and would be passing away later that day, but no, no, that wasn't the case. She knew it was Sunday morning, and it was time to go to church. With all her children around her, she turned to Dad in her kind of five-year-old, four-year-old kind of voice and mind, and she turned to my dad, who was a pastor, expecting him to lead a service. Dad was so emotional He couldn't say anything. So my sister, who was the oldest and the pastor's wife, suggested we sing together. So my family sat on mom's bed and we sang Jesus Loves Me. I think my mother is also an example of standing firm in the face of suffering. In the face of death and in spite of the pain, she continued to believe that God was good and that he loved her. She knew she was a daughter of the resurrection and that she was going home to her heavenly father where she would share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ.